The passage today is taken from Luke 8. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touch me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. It's great to be joining with Malk, who's uh, brought a message to you in the last three weeks in this series of talks that help us with our conversations as Christians in a world full of diversity and difference. It's something that I, as a pioneer, am very passionate about. How can we be the most welcoming and hospitable of people? What principles and values do we carry as Christians that can help us with that? As Catherine said, today's subject is openness and speaking into silence. Someone said to me recently that he saw a banner outside of a church and it said, Minds are like parachutes. They work best when they are open. And I guess that we as a church understand open-mindedness in some ways because we, like many people, hope that our beliefs and who we are as Christians will be respected, that people will be willing to hear and accept who we are. But what about speaking into silence? That's definitely a more complicated one. I wonder, what places of silence do you love and which do you find more difficult? Perhaps take a moment just to think about that. It might not be easy to think of difficult silences. Hopefully you will think of some more as I keep talking and I'll offer some space for that. I have grown to love silences in nature, in church, when we just held our mindfulness course recently, silence was a big part of that. And as Christians, it's a part of our tradition. We often leave silence so that we can hear from God. But what about these other places of silence? Perhaps you come from a family where everything's out in the open and you're allowed to talk about anything. Or perhaps your family have often keeping things hidden, maybe brushed things under the carpet Perhaps there are family silences that you are unable to speak into. Or maybe it's not with your family, maybe it's with your friends or your colleagues. How do those kind of silences make us feel? Perhaps we struggle with certain issues because of fear or because we feel uncomfortable or confused or doubtful. I know that we spoke about speaking into silence um, at the beginning of this year when we discussed mental health. That's certainly an area that um, silence can be a big part of. In fact, I think we even use this passage from the Bible. And you might ask, why do we as Christians need to think about openness and silence 
as part of a conversation about hospitality and welcome. Well, I think if you look at the church's history, it's extremely divided when it comes to openness and silence. And the thing is, it makes a huge difference to the trust that people have in the church. And trust is such an important part of welcome and hospitality. And so there are tons of wonderful examples of times that the church has led the way in challenging cultures of silence. But sadly, we have also many, many examples of where we've remained silent in the face of abuses of power and injustice. One of the examples I couldn't help reflect on was that of slavery. The history we are taught on slavery comes from a quite British and white perspective. And as a church, we are proud, and rightly so, of the heroes of our faith who helped to bring about abolition. But we don't often talk about the other side. In fact, the other side is in many ways a silence that we're not willing to repent of. For hundreds of years, Christians, and sadly, missionaries, were quite confused by the wrongs that they saw in slavery. But they were also determined to convert people. And in that determination, they found ways to justify slavery biblically and in law. And the reason they did this was because the association between faith and freedom is so strong in the Bible that many missionaries would face huge rebellion from slave owners when they tried to set up churches or convert people. The slave owners wanted to dismiss the idea that slaves were even eligible for conversion because as converted Christians, they often further realised their rights to freedom as children of God. Sadly, instead of joining the slaves in their fight to freedom, the missionaries lobbied the government to instead change the law to please the slave owners. In 1684, the British state brought in something called the Jamaican Slave Act, which exchanged the words Christian for white it clarified that if a slave were to become a Christian, then conversion would in no way alter his or her status as a slave. That could only be altered by being white. Bad enough was it that slavery meant no freedom before, but now just being black meant that you didn't have the same right to freedom as those who were white. What's mad about that is it was done because Christians wanted to prioritize conversion and keep people in power happy above the rights and injustice of people that they were ministering to. It's a big one, isn't it? But how often do we, in keeping a silence, think that it's a neat way around to avoid one problem or justify it because it solves another? But the problem is that there are very rarely no consequences. Somewhere, somebody is abused by that. In the case of slavery, not only was this a horrific abuse of power, but it also sadly paved the way for racism and white supremacy. Something that we've seen recently has been a silence that's perpetuated society and quite possibly the church for many years. Perhaps when you think of the idea of trying to solve one problem by suppressing another, you can think of times of silence that have hurt you or hurt somebody that you love. 
Another more recent and difficult example of where, as a church, we've been divided on silence is in the historic cases of abuse. In fact, there's so much silence around that that I imagine it makes you feel quite uncomfortable even with me mentioning it. And yet the good news is, it's amazing how many brave men and women that I'm training with to become priests have experienced abuse in the church. Somehow, against all the odds, they've taken their experience and it's led them to wanting to speak back into that silence, to become priests and help people pastorally and spiritually. And one more example I can't help but think of is during the height of the AIDS epidemic, when you would find churches refusing to hold funerals for victims, parents lying about their children's conditions, but where you'd also find many Christians called to care for the sick and lobby for their rights. And so you might be rightly thinking that at all of these times, these weren't simple or cut and dry problems. You're right, hindsight is a wonderful thing. These aren't easy issues. We don't often respond to things with a big picture view of the hurt that they can cause. We might not realise that one cover-up in a case of abuse could be part of a system of cover-ups. Or we may think that denying a truth for example, about a child's sexuality, might just prevent some uncomfortable conversations without realising the hurt that it can cause. And the examples I've given are big and they're hard, but I hope they show us just a glimpse of some of the places where we as a church have dwelled within a culture of silence and also where we've challenged it. And history can teach us so much and we need to learn from that. Like I said, there's no one easy answer to what causes us to avoid speaking into silence. Sometimes it's shame, fear, prejudice, lack of understanding or information. Sometimes it's simply not wanting to feel uncomfortable. And these are things that we're hoping to learn about through the course that hopefully some of you are doing in your home groups. It's why it's so important to address those tendencies within all of us. But one thing I think is also important is how we choose to read passages like the one we've heard today. What do we take from them? Do we look at them for just glances of truth or do we go deeper for bigger pictures of the kingdom of God? Because I think it would be very easy to read this passage and come away focused only on the power of Jesus to heal that one woman. It's certainly one of the many wonderful stories of healing in the Gospels. But there is more to the passage. What I want to ask today is whether the healing in this passage is just about the woman. Or could it also be about the healing of hearts and minds? To understand this passage, it's helpful to realise that for this woman to have been bleeding for 12 years constantly was not just physically awful for her, but was part of a much bigger problem. One that would have caused her and her family to feel great shame and probably left her an outcast. You see, menstrual breeding might feel quite normal to most of us now, especially as women. Um, but at the time, it was considered an impurity. So to have that happening constantly 
meant that she was extremely unclean and could potentially make another person impure. It's very unlikely that she could have been married. She would not have been allowed in any of the holy places like the temple. And it might seem cruel that knowing this amount of shame and distress, that Jesus asked her to reveal to the crowd who touched his cloak. Surely knowing her hidden shame, it would have been easier to keep it discreet and to just walk on thankful that she was healed simply by touching him. But as we see, he didn't walk on. He was off somewhere very important, and if you read the next passage, you'll see that. But he allowed himself to stop, to be interrupted on his journey. And in doing that, he told the crowd that they should also be willing to stop and be interrupted and to listen to her story. In many ways, he interrupted the silence that was her whole life. In her head at that moment, there was just the torment and distress that this condition brought to her. And ironically, that was a silence that she felt, even though there was great hustle and bustle and noise. But internal silences and systems of silence can often be dulled out by lots of noise and busyness. Noise and talk and being distracted can be one of the ways that we push away truth. But here Jesus chose to stop, to hear her story, and to further heal her heart by showing her love. It wasn't enough to heal her body. Jesus knew that her heart and her mind also needed healing for all that she had suffered. And then what happens when all those people stop their busyness and their focus on Jesus and listen to her Hear that her faith has healed her, that Jesus called her daughter, and that he felt no shame or impurity by being touched by her. I'd like to think that not only was she healed, but their hearts and minds began to be healed too. The healing in this story is not just about Jesus taking away distress from one woman, it's about her reaching out, interrupting Jesus being healed, and in telling her story, changing hearts and minds that were full of prejudice and judgment. In this story, Jesus challenged a silent but powerful system at the time where society was organized into pure and impure, good and bad and worthy and unworthy. We see the same thing happening when Jesus talked to Samaritans, when he healed lepers, when he confronted those who wanted to stone the woman in adultery. And what's interesting is that thousands of years after this story, our hearts and minds have been so transformed in how we view issues of disability and health like this, that the focus of healing now in those cases is very much on us and not them. It's no longer about healing someone with, say, Down syndrome or a neurodiversity even maybe healing someone with blindness. It's about changing our hearts and minds to not see them as obstacles that need fixing, but as glorious members of society in a world that is always full of the need of reconciling with one another. And so when we realise that these are messages about healing hearts and minds, we should be empowered to know that it is safe 
for us to also be interrupted, to hear other people's stories, to learn, to face our fears, and likely be changed in the process. And it's okay to feel uncomfortable. I think that's a big one for us in Britain. We so avoid feeling uncomfortable. But I'd argue that there is a place in our faith for the wholly uncomfortable that must sometimes be experienced. Malk mentioned Henry Nguyen recently, and his life is a great example of this. He spent 20 years of his work in academia in prestigious places like Harvard University in the US. But he felt he'd lost his way with God in prayer and in his identity. And he found himself instead moving uh, to minister to a community of severely disabled people called Daybreak. He was to be their chaplain and he went fully expecting to minister to them. But what he writes so wonderfully about was how in ministering to them, he realized that in many ways they were actually ministering to him. He felt that he was starting his life again. These are just some of his words. This experience was, and in many ways is, still the most important experience of my life because it forced me to rediscover my true identity. Those broken, wounded, and completely unpretentious people forced me to let go of my relevant self, the self that can do things, show things, prove things, build things, and forced me to reclaim that unadorned self in which I am completely vulnerable, open to receive and give love regardless of any accomplishments. He stepped into an uncomfortable space where he expected just to be ministering to those less fortunate than him, and yet he realized that in many ways they were more fortunate than he was, and it changed, and he changed as they ministered to him. And so in a simple reading of this passage like this one, where the woman trembles in fear and is healed, I think we can find ourselves ordering hierarchies of power like Henry Nguyen perhaps did. Jesus is the one with all the power and the woman is the one with none. And when we read these stories like that, we have a natural tendency to take that power dynamic and place ourselves in a similar hierarchy. Perhaps we unconsciously think, I have more power than the person who has this or that weakness, or who's made this or that mistake, or lives this or that lifestyle. And sadly, this is the way power has been used and abused in the church. But that's not what's going on with power in this story. In this story, the woman took power from Jesus, and he was pleased. In the story of the woman at the well, Jesus gave the woman the power of his testimony, of the good news to share with her community where she was an outcast. In doing so, he elevated her power. And then what did he do on the cross? He gave away his power for us. But why does power matter in conversations about openness and silence? Well, I think we need to realize that as a church, we are a place of power. We have power over people. 
And I imagine what you're thinking is that that makes no sense because isn't the church nearly irrelevant in society, ignored by people? You might see that we are becoming less and less influential and perhaps you wish we had more power. But I was reflecting on it and I think that we will always be places of power because we deal with immensely powerful matters in people's lives. Think of some of the big ones. Love. We care deeply about identity. Life and death. Heaven and hell. Good and evil. These are things that at the end of the day truly matter to people and to their hearts and their minds. And if we are places of power and deal with powerful matters, then we also have great responsibility, and we always will. So perhaps our history is so divided on these issues of silence and openness because we've failed to recognise the impact that we have made to people's lives when we either hold on to power or when we choose to give it away. Do we use our power to share living water like Jesus did at the well, or do we use it to condemn, to cover up, to control or to reject. And another reason that I know we are places of power is because I'm standing here. Because in training to be a priest, I'm given a voice to share this message with you. And frankly, it might not have felt very comfortable. You might have agreed with me. You might have found me frustrating. I have power right now because while I'm doing this, we're not having a conversation And in many ways, I regret that. There's plenty of times when I've sat in church and been hurt by the power of people's words at the front. We have great power in the church, and we need to be careful how we use it. Christ never abused his power. He continually gave it away, even unto death. So let me give a little bit of power back to you by telling you that there have been many times when I've sat silent in a room where I've known the right thing to do was to challenge an injustice. That I've hurt people with the power of my words and opinions. That I have ignored people because of their views. I've not been willing to let them into my life. I've had to go on a great journey and I hope I continue to. But that's why courses like the one we are doing are so deeply important. Because as Malk has already said, this is not about right or wrong answers hard hearts or lines drawn that we're not willing to cross. This is about letting go of our power, all that we hold on to so tightly, and listening, being willing to be interrupted, willing to have our hearts and minds healed as we seek to heal others. And the good news is that although history shows that we are divided on this, there are also thousands upon thousands of people in the church who have led the way in challenging those silences, who have chosen to open their minds and hearts to be healed as they look to heal the wounds of others. So may we, in following Jesus, be willing to be open-minded and interrupted. May we recognise places of silence and may we support one another inside and outside the church by seeking to learn, listen, and speak. Thank you.